Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West, and this week we're talking about connecting with blue spaces. One, two, three, four. Rebecca Olive is an ocean swimmer whose academic research explores the role of sport and leisure in human and environmental health. In particular, her work explores the practices and cultures of ocean swimming and surfing to understand how human and environmental well-being interact, as well as our relationships to all things blue space, such as sharks, animals, plastics, pollution and health. Her Moving Oceans website examines how participation in ocean sports shapes our behaviours towards taking care of the oceans. She has also published some fantastic reads, and you can see them on the website. I started in the usual way by asking her if she's always been an ocean swimmer. Are you interested? So I have always been a swimmer, but quite a recreational swimmer. So I grew up on the beach, um, like 200 metres from the beach. So I've always been very comfortable in especially oceans. But like I learned to swim so young that I can't really remember not being able to swim and I, I, I grew up in Byron Bay and I learned to swim in the Byron Bay pool um, and our swim teacher was Dennis and he taught all the local kids to swim um, so yeah I remember you know I've been swimming in that pool my whole life um, but I was never a squad swimmer um, really so I'm a very competent confident sw- capable swimmer but I'm not fast and so when I'm in a pool swimming laps and people who are squad swimmers their whole lives go next like swim next to me it just blows my mind what they can access in the water that despite my comfort and competency in the water I just I cannot move through water the way that good swimmers yeah. can. <laughs> and what and what sort of got you into your research area, studying sport and culture and, and sport in nature, that sort of thing? So I study how the role of sport in shaping our relationships to ecologies. Um, and I focus on oceans because when we do sport in oceans, and I, I look at ocean swimming and, and surfing as well, actually, but mainly swimming, we're completely immersed. And if you swim in oceans, you'll know that feeling of vulnerability that comes with that of being, um, you know, literally out of our depth, out of our element (laughs) and amongst a bunch of animals and waves and conditions. And um, so my background was in gender politics of surfing. And uh, I don't know, I guess it was just like surfing a lot and thinking about politics and and culture in the water um, led me to think about the politics of place as well. And in... um, in surfing, surfers often talk about themselves as, you know, the best people place to care for oceans. Um, and I wanted to really understand if that was the case. And as I went along, I realised that swimmers actually, you know, are also in these same um, intimate relationships with oceans. And I and that was a growing kind of activity. It's always been popular, but it's grown a lot. You know, this was pre-COVID, but then during the pandemic, obviously, it, it really boomed. And um, so, yeah, I wanted to understand how swimmers are making sense of that too, yeah. Okay, so so the idea that the the ocean is more than just the background to what you're doing but is but is kind of part of what you're doing? That's exactly right. And the research previously had often talked about nature as a landscape for sport. And, you know, in that, like in those fields of lifestyle and action and nature sports, we're also looking at skiing and hiking and rock climbing and, and mountain biking as well as the ocean-based sports. And often the research focused on the highest level 
what we call core participants, like the people who are best at it, most elite, most hardcore. And for them, the focus is a lot on competition and performance and achievement. And in that framing, the landscape and the health and um, of the landscape can fall away as a concern for, we'll call them athletes because that's what they are. But in more recreational versions of the sport, which were kind of less studied in a way, um, although that's changed a lot, the relationships were a bit different because people were often doing these sports in the place where they lived. And so they had quite deep relationships to these places that developed over time. I mean, I live in a city now, so I have to travel to get to the water. And that's been the case for me for a really long time. So I've learned that for city-based people, they still have these deeply caring relationships to coasts. It's just they build a little bit differently. But, yeah, it was challenging that idea that for um, swimmers, we'll say in this case, or hikers and mountain bikers and climbers, um, that, yeah, the ocean or the forest or the mountain means more than just a place to perform against or to be challenged by. And we even see that in a change like in surfing, for example, in high-performance surfing, you hear people saying, I slashed that wave, I tore it up, I ripped and, you know, in recreational surfing and even in professional surfing, it's changing a little bit that language because that's quite an aggressive way of thinking about, you know, surfing a wave. And now people talk a lot more about flow and glide and, and connection with. So, yeah, exactly right. It's, it's really about thinking about places more than just a background to our pleasure and leisure. That's so interesting because in, in swimming, I guess, I mean, I guess these factors are in other sports as well, but in the ocean, you've got all the animals and things that can eat you and, you know, <laughs> bugs that can get in your ears and pollution yeah. <laughs> that's, that's bad for you. Um, how do you think it, how do you think that people who participate in these sports uh, relate to these kinds of ideas? Well, that's exactly what I'm researching. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it's different for everyone. It's a real mix. Some people, some people still swim in the ocean and do talk about it as a bit of a background. And I was talking to a guy once and he was swimming with a squad. They're really, really good swimmers. And he said that there'd been this dolphin jumping around them in their little group swimming. And when he got in and talked about it, the other guys hadn't noticed this dolphin jumping around them. So, you know, whereas the, the, I often swim with groups of women and their whole swim is defined less by the physicality of the swim and more by what they see along the way. So they'll often stop if they see a stingray or a turtle or, you know, um, a big school of fish and they'll call out and go, oh, over here, look, look, look. And <laughs> often the animals swim away, of course, but they're really, really, that's part of their big motivation for the swim. And swimmers will talk about, because you ask them why, why the ocean and not a pool, and it's been the same with a river, right, a river or a lake, why, why this and not a pool? And they talk about a pool as being dead and they like the liveliness and they like that um, multi-species kind of encounters that they're having when they swim. That's part of, that's actually part of the joy of it for them. Um, some people find that so intimidating that actually a pool is a place of really great safety. So swimming in the ocean or a river or a lake is too much and they, they can't really get over what, the implications and the possibilities of that are because certainly for me, for the places I swim in Australia, um, encounters with large sharks that are known for having killed people are, are, are a possibility. They're, dying by shark bite is a low possibility, it's very low possibility, but it is a possibility. And so it is something you have to 
grapple with in terms of when you swim out in the water. And sometimes I'm sure you've had these experiences, it just gets in your head and you can't shake that fear. And in those moments, I, I just go in because it's just, it's just gotten in my head and um, it's taken over the swim, the fear. But other times you're able to embrace it as part of the choice to swim out into the ocean and that's part of what the exciting thing is about being in these places because most of the time for me in the places I swim the encounters are with fish and birds and um you know maybe cuttlefish at different seasons certainly lots of little stingrays um yeah so lots of animals that aren't threatening to us and that you'll see and come across but that they're not a threat to us and we're not actually a threat to them either do you think that um you mentioned some of the language is changing in surfing. Do you think it's translating to more advocacy to, to, to swimmers and surfers get out there placarding Save Our Oceans sort of thing? Does it does that help? Oh, this is such a good question and this is the one I'm really grappling with and um, had so many conversations about this very thing this <laughs> week. I think there's long been advocacy in groups like surfing and swimming and ocean swimming. Um, so groups like Surf Rider is an international surfing group that's been established for a really long time. Surfers Against Sewage is really famous in, in Britain. And, of course, they're saying surfers because that's where it started, but actually swimmers are a really big part of Surfers Against Sewage now. Um, in Australia, Surfers for Climate has developed. There's a group called Divers for Climate now. Um, in the UK, there's also a group about called Right to Roam, which is using access to river swimming and wild swimming. I'm using the inverted commas there. Um, to wild swimming in rivers and lakes as a way to drive public access to space, you know, to what is often privatised space amongst wealthy landowners. So I think there is a lot of activism um, growing. I think in Australia it's less amongst swimmers. It is a bit more amongst the surfers because surfers are very good at visual kind of protest. Um, and we saw it. There was a big movement here called Fight for the Bite that was against oil and gas drilling in the Great Australian Bite on the south coast. And so there was a lot of activism around that. Having said that, I would also argue, and all the research shows, that people tend not to actually activate outside in protecting their place. So when we live in a place and we have these really intimate relationships to a place, we come to care for it deeply and we want to retain our access and our um, the cleanliness of that place. We get so much from spending time on the coast or in water. <clears throat> um, all of us do. And we anyone who swims knows that feeling. And it's the same with a pool. Like I would argue the the health and well-being benefits that I got from swimming in a pool regularly when I, I'm living in the inner city, uh, they're not dissimilar to swimming in the... They're very similar. I love pool swimming, big fan. Um, but we often forget to also join those fights when it's also protecting bigger picture things as well. And sometimes we also argue for things um, to stop things that would be of benefit to the wider community for our benefit too. Yep, yep. <laughs> so it's a complicated question. I do think that swimmers should be more politically active around protecting water places. I don't think we are active enough. Um, some some swimming groups are, and um, but it's definitely case by case and it's not a collective kind of thing yet. The way that surfing has mobilised, you know, organisations and groups across coastlines across beaches across countries i don't that definitely hasn't happened amongst swimming groups no yeah we need a 
a point break for ocean swimmers or something. To, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I'm interested. So how did, how do you how did you go from sort of feminist politics into what what's the feminist angle on on this work? Yeah, well, it's feminism that brought me to this. So um, my work always starts because I'm interested in inequitable operation of power. And my starting point for that is gender politics, but it's it's never the end place because that's just one aspect of people's lives. Um, and so when you start thinking with feminist work, what you're actually interested in is patriarchy. And that work is very familiar to everyone now. And patriarchy is something that affects us all. It affects men, women, non-binary people. It affects everyone. It affects us unequally, but it affects us all. Men are very affected by patriarchy and um, too. And so patriarchy has a lot of effects, not just beyond just gender. It frames our lives in all sorts of ways. So I was reading, so uh, a lot of feminists have shown how patriarchy has also emphasised the ways that we distance ourselves from nature. So we think of humans and nature as separate in Western thinking, right, in European traditions of thought. Other cultures think very differently. So my, my thinking is very focused on understanding Western traditions of, of thought and why this idea that humans are separate from nature is so, it's so enduring. Um, and so a lot of feminist scholarship looked back into the past, back to like the Greek philosophers, to show that this had actually been part of patriarchy, was to put women in nature and men as civilised. <laughs> this is very simplified terms. And so women were always secondary, nature is always secondary. It was always something to be overcome. And so there's this real, that's, where, that's what feminists would argue is this enduring patriarchal narrative of the idea of men's mastery over nature, which you can see doesn't actually benefit anyone except people who want to, you know, be disconnected somehow. So this narrative has gone all through European thought and Western thought to today. Um, and so that's where feminism becomes really powerful in thinking about environmental politics. <laughs> so it's one way of getting into it and critiquing the human nature binary um, we call it, the, the idea that humans are separated from nature. And for me, the eco-feminist work that I use now, so the woman who wrote a book called Feminism and the Mastery of Nature is called Val Plumwood. And Val Plumwood's been really instrumental in my thinking about how swimming can challenge that in our lives. Because abstract, we can go, no, humans are part of nature, right? We can say that yeah. and we understand that. But here we both are sitting in rooms, um, built to keep nature out yep, yep. <laughs> so they're sanitized they're, we spray for pests you know like insects I should say not pests we spray for insects and we keep it all at bay but when I go swimming in the ocean I cannot keep it at bay and so Val Plumwood had an experience where she was she was attacked by a crocodile she was by herself and she was attacked by a crocodile she was death rolled multiple times and she survived she got away because they were both exhausted and she climbed up a a little hill and got away and she said but in that moment that moment that experience shattered the illusion that humans are not part of ecologies and I thought it one day I was swimming across the bay and I felt I suddenly felt so far from shore and so vulnerable and I don't know why it was so overwhelming for me in that moment but I thought of Val Plumwood's line and I realized ah this is that this moment is where yeah. you yeah, and, and it was really powerful for me. So, yeah, thinking about 
how we fit into ecologies has, <laughs> yeah, really come from feminism for me and my my train of thought. Um, but yeah, it's a good question actually because it's it might not seem obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's from kind the of outside. No, I understand where you're coming from. I mean, I was. I mean, this is a little different, but I was just thinking, I mean, I live on the Cooks River in Sydney, which is the most polluted river in Australia or something, and uh, the mastery over nature, like it, it doesn't flow. When the Europeans got here, it, they completely channelized it and turned it into something different. Now we're trying mm. to return it to nature, but, yeah, that, I don't think you'd ever swim in the Cooks River. Not yet, not yet. Not but yet. there is a movement to, you know, the swimmable cities movement um, it's really big across, you know, certainly I've been looking at it in Australia and it's in the, in like Paris, the Seine is now swimmable. Um, you know, yeah, so there is a movement that we should be able to use these creeks and rivers more and to really recognise what we've done, you know, through, in our case, colonisation, um, yeah, to these rivers and what we've taken from, you know, not only in our case Indigenous Australians but also from ourselves. Um, from people being able to access creeks and rivers, you know. I love your website and your podcast is way better than this one. Um, can you no, tell us about <laughs> Oh, it's, it's, it's exactly what I was kind of aiming for, but yours is much more uh, scholarly. Um, <laughs> Can you tell me about the Moving Oceans website and um, Saltwater Podcast? Yeah, so Moving Oceans is what I named my, it's it's the nice name for a project which is called something much more boring officially <laughs> <laughs> for the university. And it's that idea of, yeah, the role of physical activity and sport in, in activating us to think about our relationships to coasts and oceans and to take care of them. Um, and so I've focused on coast and oceans, but it all translates to rivers and lakes and canals and things as well. Um, yeah, so the website's really like an aggregate area of the project. So you can see photos and um, I blog have blog posts. The, this podcast, you're very kind. That's a very generous comment that you made is um, has stalled because I've recently moved or I moved a year ago and uh, the producer and I, Hannah, need to pick it back up and we've got, <laughs> we've got to finish it. Um, but, yeah, that was really me wanting to share the kinds of conversations that I was having in my research and to really promote the scholarship because I know that it's quite hard. A lot of our work's behind a paywall or, or when we write journal articles, it's very difficult to read because it's a particular kind of genre of writing. But the ideas aren't actually usually that like no, right, people right. can understand the ideas once you translate them outside of those um, publications so it was trying to get a chance to broadcast some of those ideas a lot more um, while also being able to challenge my thinking yeah, <laughs> yeah. through those conversations too so yeah saltwater library um got to put out the rest of <laughs> this is a good <laughs> impetus to, to, to get those interviews out um yeah i'm glad you found it helpful yeah <laughs> no i really liked it and so what, what's, what's next in, in, in your world? You're, you're off to Ireland and you're going to swim? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm off to the UK and Ireland for some research. I've done quite a bit of research over there and there's a lot more swimming research of the kind I'm doing happening in the UK than there is in Australia at the moment, weirdly. Um, yeah, so there's a little ocean uh, sort of conference or symposium happening in in Ireland, I'm going to that and I'm going, my friend, she invited me to swim and do the 10K darts, the dart swim. Um, wow, it's 10K awesome. down a river, but that's a bit much for me. So I, 
oh, I forgot to buy a ticket and now it's sold out. Oops. Oh, well, you meet her at the finish line. <laughs> um, but I'm, yeah, I'm going with her while she does that swim and I'll be her support driver. Um, and what else? I'm going up. I'm hoping to get to Lake Windermere where a colleague of mine is doing a project called Swimdermere, <laughs> which is lovely. Um, yeah, so it'll be really fun to go over there. And now I've just moved to Melbourne or a year ago and I'm at RMIT University where they have a much more urban focus of the kinds of research that happens. So my my focus on my work is, is quite um, looking a lot more at swimming in cities, I think which is, you know, very different to thinking about people who live on, you know, remote coasts. But there's lots of swimming in cities. Like Sydney obviously has loads of ocean swimming. There's definitely swimming in Melbourne. There's the Yarra Yabbies um, who dunk in the Yarra year round. And I'm sure there's other groups I haven't met yet. And um, there's lots of great pools and things. Um, You know, I was living in Brisbane where we also don't swim in the river in Brisbane because it's, um, you know, not safe um it has bull sharks in it too which i think is a deterrent but um but there's lots of pools and obviously queensland has a big swimming culture once you get out on the coast as well yeah so thinking about and and europe's um recently like um in in sweden in denmark in france in germany they have a really big outdoor swimming culture that is very seasonal it's based around summer because it's warm people swim through the year you know cold water swimming um i've heard you talk with others about um, is very popular, but it's not for everyone. Yep. So summer's really the popular time when they've got swimming in harbours and rivers and lakes around the cities. Um, yeah, so it's a really interesting kind of practice. Beautiful area of work. I think this is fascinating, you know. I feel very lucky. Yeah, I yeah. Very... And, and the thing is my methods are to go swimming with people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and to talk to them about interview them about swimming but so I'm extra lucky because I get to experience these places and the you know the ecologies that they're they're swimming into and it's a wonderful project because people have been so generous to me and they're so excited to share their swimming places with me it's um it's a very generous um, culture. Swimmers are very generous. So I feel lucky to do the work and lucky to be meeting these communities. Yeah, I guess you're, you're talking to people that, are, that really enjoy what they do and are passionate about their areas, which is not true of every area of, of study. You know, it's, it's quite rare. No, no. Well, even, yeah, even studying surfing, like surfers can be quite secretive about their places right. you know, yeah, because yeah, yeah. they don't want more people, um, whereas swimmers are still generous. I loved your articles on the in the conversation, and so I wanted to ask about them, about... Um, entering another animal's home and 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 how how you can feel safe in that environment do you have any any tips for people that 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 want to dip into the ocean but but have that fear yeah so we've talked already a bit about how it can be threatening to us you know to encounter animals but actually what can happen is also there can be threat to the animals by us being in the water if we stay on the sharks even if if someone gets bitten or attacked by a shark then that shark might be hunted you know, and we also know in Australia they've put a lot of shark nets which to give a sense of safety on beaches, um, which have resulted in the deaths of whales, um, you know, stingrays, turtles, um, all sorts of species of sharks and fish and birds, uh, dolphins. So 
to make ourselves feel safe can have a really big impact on animals in return. The other thing that we don't talk about much about swimming is because it, it is such, it's a low impact sport in so many ways, right? But at the same time, when we swim, we're still leaving behind microplastics from our swimmers. We're still, um, you know, shedding um, sunscreen and moisturisers from our skin or we're peeing out antibiotics or analgesics and things like this as we swim. So we are leaving things behind. Um, we might, if we go to a remote area, we might trample um, you know, fragile ecosystems. So we do need to be, we do need to keep that in mind. It shouldn't be, you know, a huge barrier all the time, but it is part of what we need to think about. Because I, I think there's a sense that we should just have access to all rivers and water and oceans and so on. And I agree with that. But with that, we should take responsibility with the kinds of effects that have. So when it comes to the animals in particular, I think a lot of it's about uh, like informing yourself of, what, who might you encounter in the water here? What kind of animals live here? What might you come across? And just having a sense of that before you swim um, so that it's not, it's always surprising when you see something you weren't, you know, when you come across an animal anyway, even if you thought you might see them. Um, but, yeah, it just helps you us make better decisions because us swimming has impacts on the animals in return. Yeah. Have you had any amazing animal encounters in your swims in the bay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my favourite's just the little common stingray that swims in my, like, my hometown and it's this tiny little sand-coloured stingray and it sits on the bottom and, you know, it sort of flies across the bottom of the, this, uh, the seabed. But it has these tiny pale blue spots in its back which feel like portals to the sky or something yeah, when I yeah, look yeah. at it. So that's my favourite. Um I have always missed seeing like I've always I've never been there for the leopard shark season yet so I've missed the leopard sharks some of the swimmers hear whale song when they're swimming I haven't wow. had that um yeah it's amazing um I had a swim in Sydney in Cabbage Tree Bay um with the Bold and the Beautiful crew and my first swim there I saw a dusky whaler shark swimming um I swam at Lady Elliot Island up in Queensland it's amazing still loads of animals there um surfing I've surfed with dolphins and there's been whales in the water and you know huge manta rays and things and so you know they really stand out in my memory one day I was just down at um Broken Head another beach where I grew up and I was with a friend we were just in the water on a Tuesday after work and we must have had a bunch of fish around us which usually I avoid fish balls but they were just little fish and um, these birds were diving all around us to get the fish. And it was incredible. It, it was a really memorable experience for both of us. We were just looking at each other like, oh, my God, wow. You know, yeah. So I think it's like I prefer swimming in places where there's rocks because often the rocks, act, you know, they're places that seaweed and lichens and fish and then all the other animals tend to come around um so I don't particularly like swimming across sandy bottoms because I always feel like you see fewer animals um I did go actually I was at the beach a few months ago and I forgot to take my goggles I don't know why my eyes are pretty sensitive to the salt but I was like paddling above in in water and near a rock and I was like oh there's something big under me and I had a camera so I kind of took a photo and got when I got back in, I saw it was the tail of some big 
either shark or ray. I don't know what it had been beneath me, and it was wow. like really big. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe it was good you didn't see it. No, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have been anything dangerous, but yeah, it was. And another day, actually, I was just coming out of the water, and I was in like chest deep water, and a big eagle ray just kept going. Was doing loops around me, and that was that was pretty nice. That's amazing. It's yeah. it's cool that these animals are still there in in urban environments as well, which is I guess they've cleaned up a lot of these areas. Yeah, well, I mean, here in Melbourne, you know, there's the weedy sea dragons live in the bay, yes, yeah. and the bay's super biodiverse. There's I I haven't learned about them yet, but there's a big there's a crab species that's you know, prolific here. Um, there's seals in the bay, there's dolphins in the bay, there's loads of fish and birds. And yeah, so the swimmers have all kinds, there's penguins yep, yep. as well. So the swimmers have all kinds of experiences out there too. Oh, that's yeah, amazing. it's incredible. I mean, I think the main thing I would sort of want to get across is that when we talk, like, people should just get in the water, you know. I mean, with no, I don't, I don't want to say that, actually. What would I want to say? I would want to say that swimming is a wonderful experience, you know. It's so sensual, having the water on your skin, being immersed is so beautiful. But I recognise that it's very frightening for a lot of people. Water is very frightening because drowning is a, it's another thing that can happen to us in water. It's very intimidating. But to have these kinds of encounters and experiences and to, to experience the joys that I experience from swimming, and I swim about a kilometre and a half with these ocean swimming groups, but you don't need to swim a distance. You can just, you know, we, a lot of people call it teabagging or plunging. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you can have these experiences as well without being out of your depth. Um, so it is, I wouldn't want people to feel like you have to be swimming offshore to, to have these experiences, to feel these things, but actually you can be quite near shore and, and have these joyful, interesting encounters as well yeah. um, without feeling like you have to be in waves, without feeling like you have to be out of your depth. Oh, you've done the Alcatraz swim, have you? Oh, yeah. Just, uh, yeah, a few months Talk ago. Talk about we vulnerability. Yeah, it, and cold. I, I, got, I think, yeah. the, well, it's not the beauty of it. The part of it is you can't really see more than a metre in front of your face. I don't think, it, it's not pollution or anything. I just think it's just really silty. And so mm. you just can't see very much. So there was no seeing a shark if there were any there. But um, mm. It's quite deep too, isn't it? And there's fast-moving water. Like you have to... There's a lot of planning to do that swim, right? You have to really, you can't just go out and do it at any time. You really have to plan. I mean, that's like, that's not dissimilar to that point about animals, is it? You know, where you can't just jump in the water and go everywhere. You need to really think at different places and be careful and understand something about them. And that's really part of that relationship of going, oh, I would like to do this thing, but it's, you might turn up and it's not available to you because of, you know, um, tides or weather. And, but that's part of what's really fun about it. As well. oh, I think so, yeah. Well, I mean, there was always the chance that this one 
might get called off, but uh, I think it goes quite often. But you hear those stories from like English Channel swimmers and people like that who, are, you know, that's a different league. I'm I'm nowhere there. I'm I'm much lower than that. But um, oh, yeah. I met a Channel swimmer recently, and they were saying how like they'd done the swim, and because of tides and things, it, it ended up swim, swimming way further than the distance. But they had to get out of the water a kilometre before the no. show. <laughs> it would just be I can't. That would just be that would take like quite a bit of processing and recovery to really think so. work through. But it would help that it's a pretty common outcome. Yeah, I think, I think so, yeah. Well. Um, hey, I've got another conversation article coming up. Let me see if it's been published. Oh, yeah. Give it to you. It's um, on river swimming. Oh. Uh, it's not out yet, but I'll email it to you. It's about the Seine and river swimming in Olympic history. Um, because they were swimming in the Seine in the 1900 Paris Olympics. And it included this race where it was based, it was a race dedicated, it was a one-off, it's never happened again or or before. Um, And it was dedicated to the goddess of the river. Um, I forget her name, Sakana or something. And it was a a swimming obstacle race. (laughs) (laughs) How good is that in the Olympics? Yeah, it's so funny. I know. And so, so, yeah, this article is like a sport history of swimming in the Seine. Um, and then it thinks about swimming in cities and it thinks about that relational stuff as well. Yeah. So that should be coming out today sometime. Ah, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll email it to you. Yeah, do. That'll be well out by the time I edit this up together. So I'll definitely yeah, link cool. to it. That'd be fascinating to read. Yeah. The, the swimming in rivers, yeah, it's it's not as big in Australia, is it? But I guess we've got such an urbanised coastal environment that, that the beaches are accessible for many people. But, uh, I mean, there yeah, are people that swim inland. Yeah, because it's big in the UK, but I think here it's like, yeah, I don't know why. I mean, maybe in regional areas, like people, we used to swim, in, I grew, like when I went up to the, you know, I was on the coast and you drive 15 minutes and you're in the country. Um, but all the country kids <laughs> up in <laughs> Bangalore and Uribar, they'd be swimming in the creeks and the rivers on their properties um, and or the dams as well. Um, yeah, so I guess... I think in the UK and Europe in particular, it's kind of promoted as wild swimming. That's why I'm doing these things. But here it's just a part of recreational life because it's hot. And so people just play and plunge in water in different ways. Um, And maybe we've just taken it for granted a lot more and it's not talked about. Like the ocean swimming at the moment is the really glamorous one. But I think it's also that it's a lot of the sports swimmers. So people have gone from pools to ocean swimming in a way. So they're really athletic. They're often very good looking and fit. <laughs> so they're very Instagrammable is part of it. Um, and I think, and, and oceans are also really associated because that we, we imagine them as clean in Australia. So they're clean, they're blue, they're sparkly, there's, you know, they're glamorous. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're romantic, you know, they, they feel so capable, they're full of imagination and I think that's why for us, and we see ourselves as a coastal nation, but, yeah, the river swimming stuff is certainly growing because for some people the waves are a really big barrier, as is the, the vastness of oceans, which is so overwhelming and even sometimes when I'm swimming I have to close my eyes when I breathe on the ocean side because I just... I just can't look into the blue void <laughs> anymore. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think river swimming will see growing a lot. Yeah. I know that feeling because yeah. I just breathe to the right. So if I happen to be swimming in that direction, that's all I'm looking at. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sydney's got a big up. Um, I went to a, um, you might want to look up Urban Plunge. 
Um, and so, yeah, Sydney Water's putting in heaps of swimming spots. I've got to come down because I've got field sites like in Manly and Bondi. So I swim with the um, puffer fish who are the icebergs ocean swimming group, oh, the yeah, official yeah. one. Um, and that's actually my favourite <laughs> swim. <laughs> um, it's full on because they go off that rock shelf under the pool. Oh, wow. And it's yeah. intense. Yeah, and it's very it, – there's, there's a lot of gatekeeping to that swim, which I actually really respect. Um, but I want to come down because I want to go to that spot at Barangaroo and I want to check out some of the spots yes. along the Parramatta River. Um, it's pretty exciting um, that that's happening. I think it's really cool. I think so. I haven't tried the Barangaroo. I've got some friends that have tried it, but I haven't been there myself yet. Yeah, it looks great. So it's so cool because it's, um, it's also like in a – in a time when we're increasingly risk averse, I think it's mm-hmm. pretty cool, you know, to just get people to go swimming. It's like when I went to Lady Elliot Island and um, you can just swim any and snorkel any time. No one's going to tell you not to go. And um, I found that really surprising. I think that there wasn't more regulation of it um, amongst the people staying there, but also I found it really great. And yeah. when I did the three capes walk, it was the same thing. You know, you're just walking on the edge of, cliffs that are 200 meters high or something and it's like you have to take responsibility for yourself and for the parameters of what you should be doing because the reality is you could fall off yeah you're a part of that (laughs) yeah it's not just your backdrop it's you're part of it that's right and we shouldn't be cosseted all the time thanks so much to rebecca olive for taking so much time to talk us through her research and her connection with the ocean. If you'd like any more information on anything you heard today, including links to Rebecca's Moving Oceans website and her conversation articles, I've got the new one up there, then get over to the website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. Thanks for tuning in. Sorry for the delay in getting this episode out. feel like I'm saying that a lot recently. We'll have one or two more before Christmas. My name is Mark West. I'll catch you next time on the pod.